It is a joy to, uh, to be here sharing God's Word today, and um, I, I just so enjoy um, getting to know you and seeing your love for God, and we're coming back to our study in 1 Timothy, uh, where we left off before Thanksgiving. Um, so 1 Timothy chapter 3, so the, the theme of these letters that Paul wrote was to help young Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, on how he should organize the church and how he should do church God's way. Um, and now we are here in a section where it's talking about the leadership of the church. Um, in the past, you know, the, the couple of weeks ago, we started this first uh, on the three-part series of God's design for elders. And um, as I discussed, this is not something just for us there here up front, but it's for you as well. If the elders ought to be a model to the church, an example to the church, then these requirements are also uh, to be put on you as well. And it's a good thing. It's, it's godly traits that the Lord wants to encourage us. So I just want to encourage you, because we're going to jump right into to the text, uh, to not tune it down and think, oh, this is for elders. It doesn't pertain to me. I'm like, well, it does. Because those godly character traits are expected of you as well. Okay? So let's go to chap, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, God's design for elders. And we'll read verses 1 through 3. three. Already covered verse 1, and today we're going to cover the second half of 2 and 3. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, and not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you with thanksgiving in our hearts for your faithfulness and for your word. Lord, you did not leave us without instruction as individuals and as a church. We're very thankful that you gave us um, the standard by which we can measure one another and the standards by which we should follow. Lord, I do pray that you would encourage your people as they seek to learn about these things and they will be encouraged and desirous to, to pursue these godly character traits in their lives as well. Pray for discernment as we assess the new um, pastor of our church as well. May we take that with seriousness, look into your instructions and not our personal preferences. And pray that you would guide our study today. Help us focus and to learn at Jesus' feet. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, so I, I actually post an outline there for, it's quite of a long description, <laughs> so it's a lot of um, adjectives here that we're going to be covering, so I try to categorize them in a more simpler way, um, so if you haven't gotten your outline there and some questions in the back, there's some on the table there. So I try to simplify this passage into what he must be. So specifically referring to the godly virtues that this man holds, what he must do, um, and what he must not be. All right? And then we'll, we'll cover each one of these. So it's just a, a way of, of putting them together. What then, the first thing is, what this his man should be, what his life should look like. And last week, you would recall that we read that an overseer must be above reproach, and that's kind of like the big heading um, for these character traits that an overseer must have. So then he explains, what does it mean to be above reproach? Well, it means these things here. The first one there is he must be the husband of one wife. 
And I, I titled this point as A Man of Marital Fidelity or Moral Purity. The overseer or elder must be first uh, to be above reproach in relation to women. We read in our translation that he must be the husband of one wife. But the Greek literally reads a one-woman man. That's what the original Greek um, translates. So the requirement of being literally one wife type of husband actually resembles some Roman expression that it would be found in graveyards. Um, it, it was a univera, which, which meant a one husband type of wife. So initially, according to this scholar Kostenberger, this term convey marital fidelity initially applied to wives during their lifetime and later became an epithet, um, epithet husbands gave to their wives after they were dead. As they attest, is it attested by a great number of tombstone, tombstones inscription from that time. So it's a very similar expression to this one here. The understanding that this requirement was aimed at excluding polygamists is implausible. And I've seen some people saying, oh, this is countering um, polygamy. Well, polygamy wasn't widespread practice in the Greco-Roman world of this time. Um, and, and Ephesus is part of you know, the, the Roman Empire back then. It wasn't common in the Roman society, in part because sexual encounters outside marriage, as well as divorces, were easily obtainable. So polygamy wasn't really necessary. People had these very low sexual standards of uh, premarital sex or even um, uh, sex outside marriage in all sorts of forms. So more likely, Paul here excludes man with one or several concubines. That was the practice in the Roman world. A work attributed to Demosthenes is often cited in this regard where this is what he says, and it's from the time period there. Mistress, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. Obviously, I do not agree with Demosthenes, but it does give us insight into the thinking of that time. This common practice conflicted with biblical morals since sexual union with a concubine constituted adultery. It was an adulterous relationship. So most likely, therefore, the husband of one wife represents an idiom for marital faithfulness. The NIV translates... This is a faithful to his wife, a man that is faithful to his wife. So this is further suggested by the parallel wording in five, uh, chapter 5, verse 9. Now, I, I want you to really think about this because, you know, even this morning we're talking about how can, different words in the original text can be translated in different ways, right? So there is a semantic range, a variety of ranges that one could translate this, so uh, uh, one husband, the husband of one wife, is one way to translate it. Uh, one woman man or a faithful man is one way to translate it. Now, I want to suggest that doesn't necessarily mean that he must be married. And here's the reason. First uh, Timothy chapter 5, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit more to think about. But First Timothy chapter 5, we have a very similar expression to this one, but only that the roles are inverted. Instead of talking about a man, he's talking about a woman here, a certain kind of woman. So chapter 5 is devoted, for, devoted to just talk about widows. And he says, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been wife of one man. So that is a similar expression there. The original would be a one-man woman. Uh, now, Paul is clearly talking about a woman that is old, um, above their, you know, she's 60, and they had this list to assist those women that didn't have support from their family members if they didn't have any children. 
Um, and then later on, he gives instructions even to the single women that are uh, younger and widows to remarry. Uh, for Paul to say, okay, when you're young, you can remarry, but then you get to the 60s, and if you've been married twice and you lost that husband, <laughs> um, then you, you're out of the list. No, that is not the point. Paul is talking about how can we care. And the kind of woman, obviously, she's no longer the wife of a man. If she's a widow, she has no husband. So that can't mean that she is the wife of a man. Otherwise, she wouldn't be a widow. So where a widow must have been the wife of one husband in order to be eligible for church support, where the equivalent phrase is one man woman. In that case, the issue is not polyandry, so simultaneous marriage to multiple husbands. Paul is not tackling that. He's talking about a woman that, that was devoted to her husband that passed. So it is implausible that Paul would first have encouraged younger widows to remarry only to disqualify them later because they had been married more than once. So because fidelity is what Paul had in mind here, this means that divorced and remarried men wouldn't necessarily be disqualified from serving as elders or deacons, especially if the divorce was biblically legitimate. And I will explain this. <laughs> it's a little um, hard sometimes to consider all the, the facets that are involved in this. As already noted, this is standard like all the rest, and, and keep this in mind. What category is this under? Being above reproach. So it's talking about moral character, not marital status. Scriptures not only permit or honor second marriages under the proper circumstances, Paul expected, as we just read in um, actually first, verse 14, of chapter 5, he says, Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give enemy no occasion for reproach. Um, so Paul expected younger widows to remarry and raise a family, and widows could be described as one woman, one man woman. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, he wrote, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord, meaning she has to marry a believer. Um, so someone that is a widow and remarries, he's not disqualified. Nor the Bible forbids all remarriage after divorce. Actually, in Matthew chapter 5, and we're not going to go there, but Jesus talks about the divorce, that there are some exceptions that divorce is permissible. Matthew 5, in chapter 19, our Lord permitted remarriage when a divorce was caused by adultery, for instance. Paul gave a second occasion when remarriage is permitted. When, say, an unbelieving spouse initiates that divorce and they abandon their, their spouse. Obviously, we know that God hates divorce from Malachi 2.16. He's also gracious to the innocent party in those situations. Either if an, uh, an unbelieving spouse abandoned their husband or uh, adultery happened, the Lord is gracious and allow for such situations. So since remarriage in and of itself is not a sin, it is not necessarily a blight on one man's character. If divorce now, if a resorted, if divorce resulted from a man's inability to lead his own family, as we're going to see next week in verse six, in verse five, however, then this is a disqualification. If his divorce, he was the cause of his divorce, then he he is disqualified. Now. Some of you might be thinking then, as I did when I was younger uh, and unmarried, should this requirement exclude single man and an unmarried man? Well, the answer is no. Paul doesn't intend to exclude single man from ministry. If that was the point here, he would have disqualified himself because he himself was single. 
In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, he talks about being single himself. Remember how Paul, Paul presented singleness not only as a permissible but a commendable scenario? Particularly, and you think about the context, particularly when persecution might endanger the life of a wife. That's why he was suggesting singleness for, for those that are pursuing ministry. So it is safe to assume that a man's singleness wouldn't have disqualified him from service as an elder. So in light of these considerations, the present statement does not mean that the elders had to be married. It just commends marriage as something that is not at all inconsistent with pastoral office, as the false teachers were teaching. And some of the false teachers actually was going on the other deep end to say, you can't be married at all. And so chapter 4, verse 3 says, some of these false teachers was doing a man who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in, in by those who believe and know the truth. So marriage is not the, the issue here, but um, one's faithfulness. Besides the absence of the definite article, it, it doesn't say the husband of one wife in uh, in the Greek there, it says a husband of one wife. Um, it, it, it's not referring to a leader's marital status. Rather, the issue is his moral and sexual behavior. We all know men, they are married only once. They are not at all that we could describe them as a one-woman man. Many with one wife are unfaithful to that wife while remaining married to, to the one woman is commendable. It is no indication or guarantee of moral purity. The moral loophole is that it, it's, it's, this is a quantitative, quantitative interpretation. Is that a man can be married to only one wife, only one woman his whole life and not be a one woman man. It allows for moral rationalization. So as, just, as we see the news today, right? Well, he's, he never got divorced, but then he has all these other affairs in, his, in their lives, even from the highest office in our nation. The correct sense here is not quantitative, but qualitative. The man is truly a one-woman man. There's no other woman in his life. He is totally faithful. He does not flirt, and there is no dalences. Some may wonder why Paul begins his list with this quality. Why is that he put that on the top of the list? He does so because it is in this area above all others where leaders seem most prone to fall. Whenever you hear of a pastor, most of the times that were disqualified, it had to do with a moral issue. The failure to be a one-woman man has put more men out of the ministry than any other sin. It is this way a matter of a grave concern for us. Marital fidelity was, high, was held in high regard even in the Greco-Roman world, even unbelievers extolled that marital fidelity so this quality would command such men to people and their pagan neighbors the, even the pagans would say this is a quality that is to be extolled a one woman man is a man devoted in his heart and mind to the woman who is his wife he loves desires and thinks only of her he maintains sexual purity in both his thought life and his conduct Remember Jesus said that it was not just, oh, you committed adultery physically. No, but if you look at someone with a, a lustful thought, you already committed adultery. God's standards are higher than man's standards. The qualification was especially important in Ephesus where sexual evil was rampant. Many, if not most, of the congregation had at one time or another fallen prey to sexual evil. 
if that was before the men came to Christ, it wasn't a problem, okay? So, so track with me here. If all these sins or even divorce happened before he was a believer, that wasn't a problem. Why? Because now they are a new creation. Uh, when Paul have lists uh, in 1 Corinthians, gives the list of all these horrible sins that they did, homosexuality, drunkenness, um, anger, rivalry, uh, all those awful things. And then he comes and says, but such were some of you. You're no longer that. This is who you were before Christ. So if happened, but then if this happened after his conversion, even before he assumed the leadership role, this is a problem. And I have seen um, things like that where someone was already a believer and they committed adultery, and and now they're in a pastoral position. That that is inconsistent. Now, and, and I even think about even if this did happen prior to his conversion. What does that look like to the society for a husband that abandoned their spouse or that committed adultery? So we should be looking carefully at those things, not to exclude what the Lord didn't exclude, but to focus on what he has instructed us to focus on. The same standards also apply to men in positions of spiritual leadership today. Scripture makes it clear that sexual sin is a reproach that never goes away. Proverbs 6, 33 says that of the adulterer, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. Now, even in the New Testament, Paul also indicates that failure for a single man like himself to keep the body pure and controlled results in being disqualified for preaching. In chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, you can take notes and look at it later, Paul is talking about him, the possibility of him being disqualified. If, if I'm not exercising self-control as a single man, I can be disqualified for ministry. So it doesn't have to, be with, have to do with marital status as much as it has to do with purity. All right, the second one there, the second characteristic of this man that he must be is a man of sobriety. It's a man of sobriety. And that we're drawing out from the word being temperate, that an overseer must be temperate. A leader in God's church must also be temperate. That word there literally means, in, in the original Greek, it means someone that is wineless. Not someone that is not a whiner, he's not whining all the time, but someone that is unmixed with wine. They're not addicted to wine. While it is true, and there are some parts, if you read Psalm 104, says that wine makes the heart glad, it is also has the potential to do great harm. That is why it was commonly diluted with water in biblical times. Even so, it retained its potential for harm for those who drank it unmixed or in excess. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, and a strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated it is not wise. So how about we, we, turn, we all turn to Proverbs 23, and I, I think this is such a good description of a vivid picture that is painted here for those that struggle. And um, I want to go beyond that to say that this is not just alcohol, but anything that intoxicates, that impairs someone's judgment. Obviously, wine was the most common uh, form of, of uh, alcohol. That's why it's so described here. So verse 29 from chapter 23 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? 
who has contentions, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause. The people that get beat up because of being drunk and they have no idea why, why do I have these wounds, those wounds. Constantly grieving, fighting. Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it is sparkles in the cup. When it goes down smoothly, at the last it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. You know, the, the draw of intoxication is, oh, it's smooth. It's good. It brings pleasure. It brings the buzz. But it's like a viper, just like the venom of a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. People that have um, hallucinations when they're intoxicated your mind will utter perverse things. People say things they would never say if they were sober. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down the top of a mast. You know, a very weird picture. The most strange places you will find them. And it says, they struck me, but I did not become ill. You know, I, I was beaten up, but I, I don't feel anything. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake and I will seek another drink? Is there those that are, don't take into consideration the consequences of their behavior. <laughs> When can I take the next sip? That's all they're thinking about. So scripture has some examples of leaders that fell into this trap. Noah, for instance, you remember that he, a great prophet of God, the man that really literally saved mankind with the Lord's um, help, has fallen into drunkenness. Chapter 9 of Genesis. And Amnon, David's son as well. Leviticus chapter 9 verse 10 forbids priests from drinking wine when performing their priestly duties. We remember that the Nazarites also had this vow that they couldn't drink any wine. And Proverbs 31.4 has a special instructions for kings that they should, kings and other rulers, were to abstain from drinking because... It could dull their senses and affect their judgment. Can you imagine an elder uh, trying to communicate truth when inebriated by whatever substance it is? I'm not saying just alcohol. Um, in a metaphorical sense, this word temperate means alert, someone that is watchful, someone that is vigilant, or clear-headed. That may be its primary sense in this passage. A leader must be one who thinks clearly. He must possess in their inner strength to refrain from any excess that would dull his alertness. A scholar William Hendrickson writes, His pleasures are not primarily those of the senses, but those of the soul. So temperate men are Desperate, desperately needed in the church today. Man, they are clear-headed. They're not compromised. They're not caught up in the entanglements of this world. All right, moving on here. Our next word is that this man should be a prudent man. So first, going back to First Timothy here, chapter 3, is a prudent man. He's a man of prudence. This quality is the result of being temperate. A man that is clear-headed, he will be prudent. I appreciate how Dr. MacArthur describes this quality. He says, The prudent man is well-disciplined and knows how to correctly order his priorities. He is a person who is serious about spiritual things. That does not mean that he's cold or humorless, 
but he views the world through God's eyes. The reality is that the world is lost, disobedient to God, and bound for hell, leave little room for frivolity in his ministry. Such a man has a sure and a steady mind. He is not rash, uh, rash in judgment, but thoughtful, earnest, and cautious. He follows Paul, Paul's counsel in Philippians 4, verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell in these things. So his mind will be controlled by God's truth, not the whims of the flesh. Jesus Christ will reign supreme over every area of his life. End of quote. So that is a man of prudence. He knows what to think about. He's disciplined. Which leads us to the next, uh, to the last one there of a, what a, um, well, the next one, what a man uh, should be. And that is that he must be respectable. And I, I titled this one as a man with an orderly lifestyle. A man with an orderly lifestyle. So this word, the word for respectable is a, quite of an interesting word in Greek, cosmios, where we draw our word cosmetics from. Um, it carries the idea of orderly, put together. A, man, a prudent man um, in mind will have a respectable, orderly life. His well-disciplined mind leads to a well-disciplined life. As a commentator puts it, the ministry is no place for a man whose life is in continual confusion of unaccomplished plans and unorganized activities. The word cosmos, from which the word cosmos, cosmos derives, is the opposite of chaos. It doesn't have a chaotic life. It is commonly used to describe the person who is a good citizen in the Greek world. That's how um, the, the good citizens of Rome or Greece were described. Plato defines the man who is cosmos, the same word here, as the citizen who is quiet in the land, who duly fulfills in his place and order the duties which are incumbent upon him as such. He's a good citizen. The word has more, to, more in it than simply good behavior. Um, a commentator, Barclay, describes it as the person whose life is beautiful and whose character, all things, are harmoniously integrated. Does that mean that person is perfect and have everything together and never does anything wrong? But a spiritual leader must not have a chaotic but an orderly lifestyle. If he cannot order his own life, how can he bring order to the church? This is not to say that he is a controlling, because that, that would be the other extreme, right? Someone that is a perfectionistic, that wants things, wants things their way, and, and wants to control all of the things and the outcomes, and that's not at all what respectable means. Respectable means someone that has an orderly lifestyle. He's not obsessed with order, but he has order in his life. Which that leads us to um, the last point there of what he must be. It is a man of hospitality. Fifth, an overseer must be hospitable. That word translate another a Greek word as a compound from the word to love and the word strangers. So it's someone who loves strangers. The word does literally means to love strangers. It is frequently commanded Christian virtue. I, I, I mean, I could read here several passages, Romans 12, 13, Hebrews 13, 2. So being hospitable is not a, just a, a, a thing for pastors, <laughs> For all of us believers, we should be hospitable. What does that mean? Well, for those of you that were here in first hour, we've I, I gave an assignment to study the letter of Third John. And in Third John, 
you see Gaius, this man that has really a, a good reputation of hosting missionaries in his home. So, it is not referred to entertaining friends, but showing hospitality to strangers. Our Lord said in Luke 14, 12, how about we turn there, Luke 14, 12. Who should we invite into our home? Luke 14, 12 says, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So, that doesn't mean that elders don't have friends coming over. <laughs> they don't stay with you. We do. We, we ought to welcome everybody. Especially those that can't afford. We don't invite others in order to be invited back because we want to spend time with them. This was a very important virtue in the first century because persecution, poverty, orphans and widows and traveling Christians made hospitality essential, really, in the New Testament times. Uh, we, we think so much like at a Western mind of, of even... We're now going through the accounts of Jesus' birth, right? And you think of inn. We think like a hotelish. Or, or like a, a, a little um, apartment where, you know, could, it's not really at all what, what is it, that is about. Back then, they had no hotels or motels, and the inns were notoriously evil. Often, they were brothels or places where travelers were robbed or beaten. The commentator William Barclay wrote, wrote of them. It says, and I quote, in the ancient world, Inns were notoriously bad. In one of Aristophanes' plays, Heracles asks his companion where they would stay for the night, and, the, and his answer was, where the fleas are the fewest. Yikes, I don't want to stay in a place like that. Plato speaks of the innkeeper being like a pirate who holds his guests to ransom. Inns tended to be dirty and expensive and, above all, very immoral. The ancient world had a system that they called guest friendship. So this is kind of a neat thing that they, they had back then. Over generations, family had arrangements to give each other accommodation and hospitality. Often, the members of the family came eventually to be known to each other by a by sight and identify themselves by the means of what we called tallies. So they used this tally system. So a stranger seeking accommodation would produce one half of one object, and the host would possess the other half of that object, that tally. And when the two halves fitted each other, the host knew that he had found his guest. And the guest knew that the host was indeed the long-standing family friend. So we do, uh, in our world today, we do have even things similar. We, we went on vacation the other, uh, a couple of months ago, and we found this thing, it was Mennonite away. I had no, <laughs> no idea. But you stay, you stay with complete strangers. Uh, they host and for very cheap price in, <laughs> in their home. But you, you get the picture. You know, you're, you're, you're hosting someone that is completely strange to you. I mean, they, they're believers. These are reputable people. Um, there were also many, um, in Christian church, there were wandering teachers and preachers who needed hospitality. There were also many slaves with no homes of their own to whom it was a great privilege to have the right to entry to a Christian home. It was the greatest blessing that Christians should open to them at all times, Christian homes, 
in which they could meet like-minded people. We live in a world where there are still many who are far from home, and many who are strangers in a strange place, and many who live in conditions where it is hard to be a Christian. So the door of the Christian home, as well as the heart of the Christian family, ought to be open to all who come in need. I, I think about, you know, just as a way of application for all of us, uh, with the holidays coming, realize that there are people that might not have any family members around. So have, have them be an encouragement to them during this time. So that should be particularly true of an overseer. Elders are not elevated to a place where they're unapproachable. They're not at this position. They should be approachable. They are to be available. A pastor's life and home are to be open so that this true character is manifest to all who come there, friend or stranger. Then that leads us to a second category of characteristics for this overseer. And that is on the last word there on verse 2. And I titled this part as what he must do. Not what he must be, but what he must do. And that is to teach. He's to be able to teach. A man of gifted or skilled ability to convey spiritual truth. That is what this is all about. So here's the only qualifications that relate specifically to his giftedness and function. A didacticus, or the word therefore able to teach, appears only here on this verse and in 2 Timothy 2.24 in the New Testament. An elder must be a highly skilled teacher who works hard in his studies and proclamation. That is the one qualification that sets him apart from the deacons. If you compare the list, they're very similar but there is this one point here which is able to teach, and there's more involved in what it means to be able to teach. So the primary duty, duty of an overseer is to preach and teach God's word, being gifted for that, then it's crucial. Some may wonder why Paul includes this qualification in the midst of moral qualities. Why is that? Do you notice that? He's talking about moral, moral, moral qualities, and then, boom, what he must do, what... He does so because effective teaching is woven into a moral character of the teacher. So what a man cannot be um, divorced from what he says. What he, he means, what he that means what he speaks, writes Richard Baxter, will surely do as he speaks. So what we preach, and it's just such a, a burden for us because we are told that we are going to get a stricter judgment. Why is that? Because we are teaching others. Therefore, we ought to live by what we're teaching. To preach and teach God's word is the primary task of elders. So let me walk you through for a few verses here in 1 Timothy. Uh, turn to... Chapter 4, verse 6. Why is it so important? Paul is saying, In pointing out, of these, out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. So Timothy was following the sound doctrine and he was now appointing this to others. Verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. Verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of the scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So the man of God should be able to both have a public ministry of the word where he's teaching and proclaiming to a larger group of people and the private ministry of the word where he's able to exhort and counsel and encourage so both the public and private ministry. Verse 16. 
Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Preserving these, persevere in these things, for as you do, this will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Paul is not trying to separate who a person is through what, to what they teach. The careful attention to one's life has to be closely connected, the careful attention to the, they pay to their own doctrinal convictions. Chapter 5, verse 17. It's a similar. Um, wait. I got a wrong one here. Sorry. Um, it was for that purpose that they were given to the church. These ability to teach was a gift to the church. So Ephesians 4, I think I've, I've quoted this before, Ephesians 4. What is the point of God gifting preachers and pastors and teachers to the church? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So our goal as elders is to build the body, to do the work of ministry, not to do the work of ministry all ourselves. And it says that we'll help them to get to maturity. So while all believers are responsible to pass on the truths they learned in God's word, not all have gifts for preaching and teaching. Those who aspire the pastoral duty, however, must be so gifted that their giftedness might look a little different from elder to elder. Some might feel more comfortable with the private ministry of the word, while others more comfortable with the public ministry of the word. But all elders should be able to teach in some capacity. God gifts his servants uniquely, and I think that is the beauty for us to appreciate, is that God is going to gift someone one way and gift someone in another way. That doesn't mean that one is better than the other. It does mean that they're gifted in different ways. Besides, some might have more training than others. A vocational elder have no doubt more time available to, spur, to spend on sermon uh, prep than a lay elder might have. So we acknowledge those differences as well. So what criteria identify a man as a skilled teacher? What does that mean? What, what it looks like for him to be a, a skilled teacher? And I'm going to draw here, MacArthur has uh, about seven um, aspects. So if you want to take notes of this, um, it's not in your notes. First, he says, a skilled teacher must have the gift of teaching. So we established that it is, not, it is not a natural ability that makes one a good teacher. You know, they, they might, someone might hold a job as, an, as a school teacher or a college professor. And yet, they might not be gifted with the gift of preaching and teaching. The gifting of the gift of teaching is the spirit giving, given enablement to teach effectively the truth of God's word. Timothy had that gift, as we were just read here. Second, a skilled teacher must have a deep understanding of doctrine, a deep understanding of doctrine. A good servant of Jesus Christ, Paul wrote in First Timothy four six, we just read is constantly nourished in the words of faith and of sound doctrine. The Puritan Richard Baxter writes, so here's how he describes this understanding of doctrine. And I quote, He must not be himself a babe in knowledge that will teach man all those mysterious things which must be known other in order to salvation. Oh, what qualifications are necessary for a man who hath such a charge upon him as we have? How many difficulties and divinities to be solved? And these too about the fundamentals of the principles of religion. How many obscure texts of scripture to be expounded? How many duties to be performed wherein themselves and others may miscarry? If in the matter, in a manner, and at the end, will be not well informed. 
How many sins can be avoided, which without understanding and foresight cannot be done? What a number of sly and subtle temptations must we open to our people's eyes that they may escape them. How can you warn people of the entanglements of their sin if you cannot teach? How many weighty and yet intricate cases of conscience have we almost daily to resolve? And can so much work and such work as this be done by raw, unqualified men? Rhetorical question. No. The deeper the reservoir of doctrinal knowledge a man has, the more skilled and applicable his teaching will be. Third, a skilled teacher must have an attitude of humility. An attitude of humility. To teach the truth of an arrogant attitude would only serve to undermine the very truths being taught. So let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, where that word appears again. It's the only two instances where that able to teach appears. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 and 25. It says here, The Lord's bond servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind. What? Able to teach. Be kind to all. Be able to teach. Patient when wronged and with all gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So he teaches, but he does that with an attitude of humility, an attitude that he too struggles with sin, might not be tempted in the ways that he might be instructing the person, but he does that with a spirit of humility in order to help others, in order to save them from the snare of the devil. Fourth, a skilled teacher is marked by a life of holiness. Paul exhorted Timothy to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And in chapter 6, verse 11, he says, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. He must be credible and leave, live what he teaches. Paul exhorted Timothy to, let's turn to chapter 4, verse 12. It's a well-known verse. Why it's so important that his teaching goes with how he lives. There's Timothy 4, and verse 12. It says, let no one look look down on youthfulness, but rather in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. If, If Timothy were to teach these things, to love others, to be pure, to be a good speaker, a way that glorifies God with your speech, then he should live these things out. The teacher must be the prototype of what he asks his people to do. Fifthly, a skilled teacher must be diligent study a student of Scripture. We're all well familiar with 2 Timothy 2.15. For the all Awana kids there, you remember this verse, be diligent to present yourself Approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling the word of truth. Handling correctly the, the word of truth. And, and the word there, it means to know how to cut it. You know what the context is. You know where to go and where not to go in your interpretation. You know how to apply that to the specific circumstances that people might be facing. So they're diligent student of scripture. And sixth, a skilled teacher must avoid error. It is tragic when men who are pursuing ministry are are put in leadership with little or no preparation whatsoever. I've witnessed some of that in Brazil, and it's just so heartbreaking. Or they were trained in schools that didn't take scripture seriously. 
While they may survive with the basics of their faith intact, they will almost invariably lose their convictions. Paul repeatedly warned Timothy to avoid false doctrine. Wise counsel for us as well. It is one of the disasters of our modern times that the teaching ministry of the church is not carried out as it should be. There is any amount of topical preaching and any amount of encouragement, but there is little use of urging people to be Christians when they do not know what it means to be a Christian. So finally, a skilled teacher must have a strong courage and consistent convictions. He must not abandon the truth and shipwreck his faith. At the close of his ministry, he should be able to say with Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. So he remains in the truth that he's teaching. And then lastly here, what this man should not be. So the, Paul now in verse 3, he shifts the, um, the reasoning from, okay, these are the things that he must be, the, things he must, the thing that he must do, and then what he shouldn't do. Where are the evils that these men should flee? And the first one is that these men flees a drinking reputation. Which he is expanding more the, the first characteristic of not being involved with drinking. The, the temperate person that he described on verse 2, he's now saying that he's not to be addicted to wine. This quality is not concerned with whether or not he gets drunk. Obviously, someone given to drunkenness would in no way be qualified for the ministry. This is kind of obvious. Why is that he's saying this? An elder who is not addicted to wine is a man who does not have a reputation as a drinker. I mean, you hear nowadays people just boasting right and left, oh, this is my Christian freedom, it's fine for me to drink. Yes, it is not a sin for us to drink. But where is the line where there is intoxication? And where is the testimony an elder should not have a reputation as someone who drinks. The Bible points out the tragic consequences when leaders are drinkers. Isaiah blasted the spiritual leaders of Israel for this very sin. Isaiah, Isaiah 28, 7, he says, And these also reel the wine, and he stagger from drunk strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're confused by wine, they stagger from the strong drink, and they reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. A man who is a drinker has no place in the ministry. He is a poor example and surely be the cause of serious sin and disaster in the lives of those of others who follow his, examples, his example as drinkers, justifying their indulgence because of their leader. Well, my, my pastor does this. Why shouldn't I? A leader must be a man whose associations are radically different from those of the world and whose example leads others to righteous conduct, not sin. In ancient times, most people consumed wine. Since it was a staple liquid to drink, the water was impure. So, and this is, this is important for us to understand. The water was impure normally, and mixing that with wine, the wine with water, not significantly, not only diluted the alcohol content, but it purified the water. So a mixture of eight parts of water to one part of wine was common, so to avoid any dissipating effects. Why am I saying this? Because you're going to read in chapter 5, verse 23, Paul saying, telling Timothy, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine. He's not talking about a whole lot of wine. He's saying a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for frequent ailments. So Timothy was even reluctant to take the mixed wine so not to set an example that could cause someone to stumble. That's why Paul had told him, you know, it's okay for you in the situation that you're but today we do have water treatment. We don't need wine to treat our water. And we do have medicine to help people with their uh, stomach problems. 
All right. Secondly, what else should he flee from? He flees from his strife and disunity. Verse 3 says, He should not be pugnacious, but gentle and peaceable. Nor may an elder be pugnacious. What does that mean? That word in Greek literally means not a giver of blows or not a striker. A leader in the church must not be one who reacts to difficulty with physical violence. He must not settle disputes with blows. He must react to situations calmly, collectedly, and gently. Instead of being pugnacious, a leader must be gentle. This word describes the person who is considerate, genial, forbearing, gracious, who easily pardons human failures. Such a person remembers good and not evil. He does not keep a list of wrongs done to him or hold a grudge. Many men leave ministry because they can't accept criticism, isn't it? A leader, when wronged, must have no thought of retaliation. Well, they said this to me. I got I to gotta fight for my... I can't be trampled on. Well, what did your master do when they reviled him? Uncontentious was the other word there used, or gentle. Translate the word peaceful or reluctant to fight. It refers not so much to the physical violence, but to a quarrelsome person. Very likely, Paul had the false teachers in mind when he wrote this, for they were starting to become belligerent. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 4 and 5, he's talking about the false teachers and says that he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which they arise envy and strife and abusive language, evil suspicions and constant frictions between men of depraved mind, of deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And from time to time when I worked in the library uh, at, at, the, at Masters, we had people come into our building, and we're, we would receive phone calls with people um, asking questions, with theological questions. Most of them wanted to be instructed, but there were a few that just wanted to argue. They just wanted to debate. In that case, the best thing an elder can do is to agree to disagree and politely send their way, them their way. The church is not a debating society. Indeed, a few things are more distracting to God's word than quarrelsome leaders. Uh, this commentator, uh, David Dixon, um, he observed the same problem one century ago. He said, May, men of points and pugnacity are very annoying in a session or in a congregation. They may rise to terror of the, presbytery, the presbyteries and other church courts. They might love the truth at heart, and, and we believe that they often do, but they love fighting too. A carping and censorious spirit is to be watched and prayed against. In all of us, it is often the precursor and the companion of backsliding in the doctrine of life. When you see someone that is quarrelsome and contentious, be on a watch out. To have a contentious person in leadership will result in disunity and disharmony, seriously hindering the effectiveness of that leadership team. An argumentative man is the worst kind of man to have on the board of elders. When overseers discuss the ministry of church, they express their opinions clearly and charitably because some decisions emerge from lively discussion. I mean, we do have discussions as elders that sometimes we might disagree, but we're not trying to, to bike bite each other, but to come into a solution on how to better shepherd God's people. On occasion, it is even appropriate for objections to be raised, but this must never be done in the spirit of contention. James 3.13, I want to encourage you to, to read that passage later. It describes a truly wise man as someone who shows his good behavior, um, his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. 
True wisdom is not prideful, it's not contentious, but it's peaceable. Then lastly, these men flees materialism. He flees materialism. And we get this from the expression, he is free from the love of money. It is a perverse corruption of the ministry to be ministry for money. Love of money is what the heart of all motivation of false teachers. I mean, that's what we see today on those televised preachers. And it's all about the money. It's not about serving the Lord. So I want to close with 1 Timothy 6, 10. Because this, talking about materialism, it's, it's not a matter of just for elders, but for us as a church as well. So chapter 6 and verse 6, it says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For when we, we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires will plunge man into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many griefs. So there is a warning there. Now, I I do want to make a reflection here that I think we as a church, we should care for our elders to provide for them, so not to put, I see some churches sometimes put elders on a financial strain. And the man is tempted to, to do things and not justify their sin, but we want to be careful and, and, and care for our elders. So Paul was free from the love of money. He assured, studying Ephesians, Ephesians elders during the three years of his ministry, he kept saying, I coveted no one silver or gold. I actually worked for myself so I wouldn't be a burden to anyone. A leader must not be greedy or stingy or financially ambitious. Um, This commentator says, the earthbound desires of a covetous spirit always clip the wings of faith and love. That's Paul is saying here, contentment. That is the key. So in conclusion, to those aspiring to be an overseer's role in the church, they must be measured against these moral qualities before they are ordained to serve. May God give us morally qualified men to lead the church through these darkest times. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you gave us all these instructions and this model to follow. Lord, I pray that for us as elders that you would help us in all humility, to grow in these areas and to become better examples to your people. And at the same time, I pray for your people that they will be able to be followers of Christ first and foremost and of what we're modeling to them. I pray, Father, that all these areas will be reflected on and encouraged in our lives that we might pursue continuous godliness with Christ. But we pray for your favor in Jesus' name. Amen.